0: If you have your Bibles, you could turn to Mark chapter 16 uh, at the beginning of that chapter. Mark chapter 16. January 25th is unofficially a, uh, a holiday, and it's called Opposite Day. Now, Opposite Day was a day that many believe began on children's playground and with children's games. And what the goal of opposite day is, is everything that you say and do has an opposite meaning. So for instance, you're supposed to say and do things that are opposite. You wake up in the morning, you're supposed to say good night rather than good morning. Whenever you want to go to your right, you actually say to your left. And every time that you say to your left, you're actually saying to your right. Are you confused? I am too opposite day is not just what you say, but it's what you do. And so what would happen? You wake up in the morning you wake up in the morning, you would eat dinner for breakfast and breakfast for dinner. When you wake up in the morning, you would wear your pajamas to school and then go back and sleep in your clothes at night. I know a lot of college students do that anyway. So that's not so much an opposite day for them. But it's interesting when you look at the uh, origins of opposite day, it goes all the way back into the 1920s and Calvin Coolidge, as the 30th United States president, was accused of saying something that was sort of like an opposite day. So you can go all the way to Calvin Coolidge in the 1920s, all the way up to 1999 for that cultural icon, SpongeBob SquarePants, who did an episode in 1999 that was focused on opposite day, opposite day. It got me thinking. When I look at the life of Jesus Christ, his life was a continual opposite day. Now, what he said and what he did was never opposite in meaning, but it was opposite in expectations because he was constantly teaching and constantly doing things that were opposite of everyone's expectations. Jesus is the Messiah. And during that time, there was this kind of Messiah watch. Everybody was thinking that now was the time when this great Messiah would come. And from some earlier writings, they described what the Messiah would be like. And the Messiah was going to be a warrior king who came in on his horse, brandishing his sword. And when he came in, he was going to take those hated Romans and dispel them from the country and allow the Jewish nation, Israel, to be world-dominating. That's who the Messiah was. And that's what they were waiting for. But yet here comes Jesus, and when Jesus came, he, became, he came as a humble servant. Complete opposite as to what they were expecting. But then when he would teach, his teachings were complete opposite. Now, he would say things like, um, Well, in fact, in their day, they believe you should love your neighbor, hate your enemies. But Jesus says, I'll tell you what, I want you to love your neighbor, and guess what? I want you to love your enemies, and I want you to pray for those that persecute you. He says, You know, it's better to give than it is to receive. If someone strikes you on the cheek, I want you to turn and offer the other cheek also. He said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the complete opposite of how we think. And so as Jesus is teaching during these three years of ministry, he is saying things that when people look at it, this is complete opposite as to what we think. And so for three years of his ministry, he was saying and doing things that went opposite of what everybody expected him to do. And then on Friday, Jesus, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, was crucified on a cross like a common criminal by the same Romans whom the Messiah was supposed to come and conquer. This is completely opposite as to what we thought was going to happen. But yet Jesus predicted this. He said it had to happen. And he says, it will happen and I will die. And that was opposite of every preconception of a Messiah. So even those that thought, hey, this could be the Messiah, when he starts going to the cross, they're saying, that's not right. That's not right. There's no way the Messiah is supposed to die. But there he is, suspended between heaven and earth with the life ebbing out of him. This was totally unexpected. But you see, it was unexpected to all the masses, but actually it was predicted in the Old Testament. If you look in Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2. In Isaiah 59 2 it says this, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Look at this word iniquities. That is a word that means our sins. Everything that we've done wrong in our life. And it says all of us have done this and it's made a separation between you and your God. And when you came to the New Testament, Romans 6.23, it says that for the wages of sin is death. That's the payment. So when we sin, we get death. Separation from God. Spiritual separation, physical separation, we are separated from God. But you know, the Old Testament, it knew that there was this separation. And then there was a prophecy in Isaiah 53, 6. And look what he says. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, just right here, you could just put Jesus right there, his son. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. Whoa, the iniquity. It's those things that separated us from God. And guess what God did? He laid all those iniquities on his son. This is what it said in the Old Testament. This is what it prophesied. This is the Messiah. The one who will take all the iniquities on him. And what God did was he poured out all of his wrath against sin on the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, who was expected to bring the wrath of God on the Romans, is now taking the wrath of God for us. Completely opposite. This was not on anybody's radar for this to happen. But that was Friday. And on Friday, his body hung on a cross. They came, they took his body down, they wrapped it in linens, and they hurriedly buried him in a tomb. And they placed him in a tomb. And when they placed him in a tomb, they then rolled a large stone over its entrance and they left him there. And that was Friday. But today is Sunday. And on today, you're going to see something else that was an opposite day. And if you look in your Bibles in Mark 16, verses 1 through 7, as I read this passage, just follow with me. He says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. It's Sunday. This is the expectations. These ladies went to the tomb and this is what they expected. Number one, we're going to have a stone that's going to be in front of the entrance. We've got to find somebody to roll the stone uh, away. Number two, the body of Jesus is going to be there. We're going to put some more anointing, more spices on the body. Number three, nobody else is going to be in there. It's going to be empty except for His body. Those are the three expectations these women had when they arrived at the tomb. Number one, the stone was rolled away. Didn't expect that. Number two, they looked in the tomb. No body. Jesus's body is not there. They didn't expect that. Number three, there's an angel sitting there. They weren't expecting that. And the angel tells them, Jesus is risen from the dead. This was the ultimate opposite day. This was the ultimate opposite day. Everything they would have imagined and they thought on that day has completely turned around and is completely opposite. And so when the angel informed them, he says, Jesus is risen from the dead. And I'm telling you what, he's alive and well. He wants to meet the disciples in Galilee just as he told you. Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. But it was the opposite of what everyone thought he would do. He says, he's been telling you he's going to die. He's been telling you that three days later he's going to be raised from the dead. He's told you these things, and guess what? You didn't believe him, but he did exactly what he said he would do, which is the exact opposite of everything that you expected. So when you think about that, then you ask yourself the question, so why is this resurrection so important? I mean, they came, he was risen from the dead, that's great stuff, but why is it so important? Well, when you go to the Apostle Paul, he writes a letter to a church in Corinth, and he uses an opposite argument to make his case. In fact, what he does, he, he's dealing with some people who don't believe that there's even a resurrection of the dead. They think, I don't think anybody can be raised from the dead. So Paul says, let's go with that argument. If no one could be raised from the dead, then guess what? Jesus has never been raised from the dead. Okay. Well, So what happens if Jesus is not raised from the dead? This is what he says in verse 17. In verse 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. You're still guilty of your sins. Okay, choir, I know you're probably the brightest theologians we have over here. We said earlier in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is, is death. So if it means I'm still guilty of my sins, it means that I'm still in death, all right? This is not a happy, happy verse. And he says, all your faith is useless and you are dead in your sins. And what that would mean is that when Jesus Christ lived this perfect life for about 33 years, and then he went to a cross and was crucified and was suspended between heaven and earth for six hours to take on what he thought was the sins of the world, and that this was an atoning sacrifice, and that when God was pouring out all of his wrath of sin on him, if this is correct, it means that he did all of that, and in the end, God said, not enough. Not accepting that one. Which meant all of Jesus' life was in vain, And we're still stuck. We're guilty in our sins. And we'll never be connected to a holy God, and we'll always live our lives in total separation while we live here on earth. And then when we die, we'll end up being separated for eternity. He said, If Christ is not risen from the dead, this is is it. But then in verse 20, Paul comes back. He says, But (laughs) in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Yes, God raised him from the dead. And when God raised him from the dead, it meant that he accepted that sacrifice for all the sins. And that is huge, folks. Because what that means is now when anybody places their faith and trust in Christ as their personal savior, then they will be saved from their sins and they'll receive forgiveness of sins. And the reason is because the wrath of God will never come down on you because he already came down on Jesus. And he has taken the wrath for all of your sins. And he's poured it out on his son, Jesus. And when we make that decision to receive Jesus in our heart, then all of a sudden we're protected by the cross. And God says, hey, your sins have been paid for. You've received the gift, the grace gift. And so through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, a holy God and sinful man can come together in a relationship for all eternity. And see, that's why the resurrection is so important. Because if it was just the cross and there was no resurrection, then it meant that we're still dead in our sins. But because of the resurrection, no longer are we dead in our sins. And look what he says. He says in verse 22, So also in Christ shall all be made alive. So also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, think about it. Verse 17 Christ didn't raise from the dead, guilty of sin. When Christ is risen from the dead, guess what? We'll be made alive. Here's your two differences. Without the resurrection, guilty of sin. We're dying. With the resurrection, we're all alive, alive in Christ. Now, this is where the opposite comes in. Because, you see, because of what Christ has done, then we see that the opposite of death, and I'm going to check you with this choir. How about this? The opposite of death is, what do you think? Life. life. You guys are good. You guys are good. All right. I'm coming to under the balcony, guys. going to ask you a question in just a few minutes, so y'all be ready. All right. The opposite of death is life. The opposite of unforgiven is what? Forgiven. The opposite of being rejected is accepted. The opposite of without hope is to have hope the opposite of an aimless existence is a purposeful life the opposite of hell is heaven all of these things have been provided for us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and because God raised him from the dead we have all of these things now, when I think about that, and I look over these verses, and, and I, I think about all that he, all that he did, I, you then want to say, well, well how, how does this, what does all this mean? What it means to me is that there's an incredible love that God and Christ have for us. Because to know that God sent his son to die on a cross for our sins, now just think about this. God could have left us in our sins... We could be created, we could live this life, go through meaningless living and then die. And one day we die, we spend eternity separated from him forever. But God didn't want it that way. And throughout all the Old Testament, he had these sacrificial systems for people to come back to him, come back to him. And then finally he says, we're going with the ultimate sacrifice. And he sent his own son to take the wrath of sin. And he poured all the wrath of sin on his own son because he loved us so much. But then think about Jesus. When Jesus came, he still had a choice. He could have said, you know what, I'm not going to the cross. And that garden of Gethsemane, he was praying and he says, God, if there's any other way to do this, do it. But your will, not mine. And the reason he did that is for you. It's not for anything else. It's not some big theological show, showdown. He did it because of you and me. He loves us that much. That he says, I want you to have a relationship with my father and I want to spend eternity with you. And so he goes to the cross and he pays that horrible death. He pays that horrible penalty and that terrible death on the cross because he loves you so much. So, so what do we do with this? Well, what we do with this, Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 tell you exactly what to do. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth he He confesses and is saved. So it all comes down to a choice, to where you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, and, and God really did raise him from the dead, and you confess with your mouth. That means you agree. And you make the choice to say, God, I want to receive you. I want to receive this gift of salvation, this incredible grace gift. I want to receive that. Now, You know, before I became a pastor, I was in sales for about eight and a half years uh, um, with um, telecommunications. And, um, you know, I I had some pretty good products sometimes. Some products, Steve, weren't so good, right? (laughs) And, and, And sometimes there were some tough sales and other ones were a little easier to sell. I'm not trying to sell you anything, but I'm telling you, this is a really good product. I mean, this is really good. I mean, it is, it, is, it is salvation. It is sins forgiven. <clears throat> it is a purpose in life. It, it is to be loved by the one that created you, wants to have a relationship with you for all the years you live here on earth. And then whenever you take your last breath here, they say, he says that your very first breath will come in heaven. And we will spend eternity in a place that you can't even imagine how incredible it's going to be forever and ever and ever. And when you, I said, Well, what do you need to do about that? He says, Well, really, all you have to do is accept the gift. You accept the gift. I mean, that's it. I'm not asking you to do a whole bunch of stuff, not to jump through a bunch of hoops or anything. I'm just, you just accept the gift. He said, It's a grace gift. So why don't people accept this gift? Well, the reason is, is because it's opposite. It's opposite of things that we believe and who we are. And it just makes it real tough, apparently, for a lot of people to be able to just accept that gift. Right, let me give you some ideas. First of all, it's like this Salvation. Salvation through Jesus only is opposite of our culture. You see, when we sit there and say we're offering this grace gift, God is offering this, this gift of salvation. Jesus himself said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And people begin to bristle about that and say, well, how can he sit there and say he's the only way? Well, I'm telling you how he can say that is because he's the only one who the wrath of God poured out on him and poured out all the wrath of sin on his son and he paid the penalty. He's the only atoning sacrifice in the history of mankind. And because he's the only one that's done that, he's the only one that is justified to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But see, in our culture today, it's opposite of our culture because in our culture, we want to be able to um, uh, have a great respect for all other beliefs, and I'm a 100% for that. I'm 100%. We need to respect differing beliefs along the way, and we can have good dialogue But when our culture begins to push us to where it says, no, not only are you supposed to respect it, but you're supposed to accept it and adopt it. Well, once you go there, you're going away from the gospel. And that is just wrong. And we're going completely away from what Christ did. But see, with our culture, we don't want to sit there and get anybody upset. We don't want to seem narrow-minded. And so it makes it difficult for some people to say, "Ah, I think I'm not sure if I want to accept this or not. And if I could just say this, if there were other ways to get to heaven, I don't really think I would like the God that we're talking about in the Bible. Because what that meant is that he took his only son, sent him to earth to pay an incredibly painful, just go and read what crucifixion is all about. And to go through that crucifixion, that death, and to feel the spiritual weight of all the sins of the world on him. And then when it was over, God says, ah, that's just one of the ways. There are a lot of other ways that you can go. That makes no sense. That would be a horrible picture of a God. That would be a cruel, mean God. But you see, God says, I'm telling you what, folks, sin is this ugly. It's so ugly, I've got to send my son to die for it. But I'm going to pour all my wrath out on him. And then I'm going to raise him from the dead. And I'm going to set him on the right hand of the Father. And he's king of king and Lord of lords. And if you accept that gift, you've got salvation. But you see, it's opposite of our culture. Let me tell you the second thing is salvation by grace is opposite of our self-reliant mindset. It is hard for people to get their hands around a grace gift. Especially over the mountain people. Because we are so confident in our own abilities. We're doers, and we feel as though our effort should be enough for salvation. There should be a lot that we should be able to do. When Warren Buffett committed thirty million dollars to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, when he committed the thirty million dollars, billion dollars—excuse me—you uh, know what he said? He says, "You know, there's more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way." Well, what he meant is humor describes what uh, most Americans take as serious. The latest research shows that 71% of Americans think that works are required for salvation. It's that we've got to do stuff in order to be saved. It can't be a grace gift. We, we're self-reliant. You know, I've just got to be a hard-working business person. That's what I need to do in order to be saved. Or maybe it's I need to provide a high standard of living for my family. I need to be a great dad that balances work and family. I need to be a committed mom that's there for my kids and I'm there for all their activities and all all their good times and bad times. Uh, I'm going to be a moral pillar of society, respected by all my peers so that when I die, they say nice things at my funeral. I want to volunteer to work at church or work in social agencies. Maybe it's giving money to charities or to those that are in need. Maybe it's excelling in in your schoolwork maybe it's attaining terminal degrees maybe it's digging clean water wells in africa and india and on and on and on everything that i said is good stuff it's all good stuff but we we hold on to it and say in order for me to be saved in order for me to get to heaven I, these are the things i got to do and yet when you lay out the gospel and it says you can't do it it's already been done christ has already died for your sins but in that self-reliant mindset, it's just opposite. And I've done that. I've shared the gospel with people. And they just looked at me and shook their and said, it just, just can't be that way. It's, it's got to be harder. It's got to be harder. Number three, committing our life to follow Jesus is opposite of our self-centeredness. Committing our life to follow Jesus is opposite of our self-centeredness. You know, Jesus said in Matthew six twenty four, he says, if anyone... Would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why do people not make decisions to receive this incredible grace gift? It's because of self centeredness. Because this thing right here, (laughs) let him deny himself. Nobody wants to do that. We don't want to do that. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want God changing our lives, we don't want to make changes to our lifestyle. We just want to keep on living the way that we're living. We don't want to deny ourselves. Take up our cross? You know, take up our cross means take up our cross means that we're willing to be persecuted. They say, "We don't want to get we don't want to be persecuted." And it's not so much that our life is going to be in danger, but it's just that people are going to make fun of us. And I don't want my teammates to make fun of me. I don't want my business partners to make fun of me. I don't want our peers to make fun of me. I don't want classmates to make fun of me. I don't want to get persecuted. So, no, I don't want to do this. You see, it's opposite of my self-centeredness. Because what the gospel of Christ is, it's completely opposite. It says it's not self-centered, it's Christ-centered. And we need to come to the point where we see that gift of grace. We say, okay, God, I want you to come in. I want you to take complete control of my life. I want you to take the whole thing. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up a cross, and I'm going to follow you. But see, it's opposite of our self-centeredness, and we just don't want to do that. Let me tell you the last thing, and that is that committing our life to Christ is opposite of our temporal perspective. It's opposite of our temporal perspective. You see, your focus is is on the here and now. You're so busy getting all you can get. You're trying to get everything that you can get. You gather your stuff. You move from one experience to another, from one activity to another, from one accomplishment to another, investing so much in the temporal things of this life that you don't even feed your soul. You don't have the time or interest to even think about spiritual matters, much less eternity. And so when someone comes and we, you hear a sermon about the resurrection and Christ has died on the cross, he's risen from the dead, you're saying, oh, that's really good stuff, but for another day. Because I've got all this temporal perspective going on. I've got work to go back to on Monday. I've got bills to pay on Tuesday. Uh, I've got a doctor's report on Thursday. And and so I I just, it's just too much right here. I don't want to think about future. I don't want to think about eternal matters. I don't want to think about spiritual matters. And so we never feed our soul. But see, Jesus gives us a word of warning on that. And his word of warning is found in Matthew 16, And in Matthew 16, he says, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? He says, what do you gain? I mean, mean, you're putting all these efforts into these temporal things that are going to pass away, but in the midst of that, you've lost your own soul. You may have built a great business. You may have accomplished a 4.0 in your studies, but you've lost your soul. He says, is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. This takes you out of the temporal perspective into the eternal perspective. And it says that one day we will be judged according to our deeds. There will be a day when we will all be judged for all of our deeds. We all will have to answer for our life the good and the bad. But guess what? You get to make the choice as to how that day will go. Either you will stand before a holy, righteous God, dressed in sinful, filthy rags, pleading your case, or you'll be dressed in spotless garments that have been washed by the blood of Christ, so that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ in you. For one, he will say, I never knew you, depart from me. For the other, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, come join me in my heaven. Where do you want to be on that day? That day will be coming. There's no question about that. Everything Jesus said came true. When the angel said in Matthew 16, 7, just as he told you, everything he said came true. He said he was the son of God, he was. He said he was going to die, he did. He said in three days he was gonna be in the grave, he was. He said at the end of three days he would be raised from the dead, he was. He said he would then ascend to be with his father, he did. And he said, I'm coming back again, he will. Everything he said is true. And that's because when we look at the resurrection, it affirmed every single thing in Jesus' life. And that's why it set him apart and above any other religious leader, any other ideology, because no one has died for the sins of all humanity, living a perfect life, and then been raised from the dead. And he provides this for us. And it's an opportunity for us to respond to him. For some of you, today is opposite day. You know What I mean by that is some of you came today just to check the box of church attendance. I understand that. Some of you came because you were prodded by parents, uh, maybe by a neighbor. Uh, maybe you came in from out of town. And you said, okay, we're coming to Easter service. And the whole reason I'm doing this is because I'm guaranteed a good lunch afterwards, all right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check that box. I'm just going to get that box checked over there. And so I understand that. And some of you are just visiting and saying, you know, I've never been to an Easter service. I was wondering what one would look like. It was raining outside. Will anybody show up? You know, these kind of things. And, and so you came and you said, wow, I've come to an Easter service. I can check that box off. But for some of you that came in on this day, it's going to be an opposite day. Because hearing this message, listening to this music, there's something that's going on in your heart that's a little bit different. Because the same feeling you had when you drove up into the parking lot, now the a sun's a little bit different. And intellectually, you can see what I'm talking about, and you say, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And then emotionally, you're feeling some kind of pull to this, but then there comes that last step, and that is volitionally you having to make that choice. And today could be the opposite day for you, in that you came in here a person who was separated from God. And you could walk out of this place a person who's connected with God, who is a child of God. And there can be an adoption service to take place right here in this service to where God adopts you into his family. Because you receive that message. You receive that gift of grace. And just as we said in Romans 10, 9, and 10, is to believe in your heart. For you to believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he is. And you confess with your mouth. You say, I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I want you to come into my life. I want to begin this relationship with you. That can happen today. And today would be your opposite day. Came in lost, walked out saved. Came in unforgiven, walked out forgiven. Came in with an aimless existence, walk out with a purposeful living. Walked in feeling hopeless, walked out full of hope. Walked in feeling unloved, walk out loved eternally be a huge change now there's others of you that are here that um you're already believers and and you know this you've made that decision but today needs to be an opposite day for you because even though you know these things and you know there's a direction you're to live your life your life is really going in an opposite direction from what god has called you and you realize it and easter is just a great reminder of that And so as you sit here in the pew, you think about, I know that I'm saved, and I think about the love that God and Jesus has for me to go to the cross and then to raise him from the dead. And, you know, I'm not returning that love. I'm like a prodigal. I'm far away. And so today I'm going to go in an opposite direction, and I'm going to come back home, and I'm going to come back to the Father. What a great opposite day for you to walk out of here, walking according to God's commands and living the way he intended for you to live, according to his word. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. Heavenly Father, whenever we come on an Easter Sunday, is again to remember the incredible expression of love that you had by sending your son, lying him to die on a cross to cover all of our sins and then to raise him from the dead. And Lord, it is the empty tomb that gives us joy and gives us hope. It's what allows us to walk out from this place and to stand up into a, into a culture and into a society that is turning their back on you but yet we can stand strong because we know the truth that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Lord, you love us as individuals, and you love each person that's sitting in the pew here, and you have a desire to either begin a relationship with them or to strengthen a relationship. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in such a powerful way that it would pull those to you that have been far away from you and that today would truly be an opposite day to where they went away, they came in one way and went out a better way. Speak to us, Father, and help us to make those decisions. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.